often it's about time. Time is just being together and actually there's not a lot happening in, in that time. In this cartoon, which is called Pancakes, it's just me with my child making pancakes and I'm saying, oh, I've burnt this one and my child's saying, haha, that's your one then. And it's these little moments where there's nothing really happening. There's just the comfort of nice food, there's the time being together and a little bit of mucking around and those are the bits that I call healing. Episode three, Finding Other Ways. It's taken two years, at least maybe two and a half now, for my son to really leave his bedroom. I think he's comfortable and that's massive because for years and years and years and years he's been severely uncomfortable and trying to mask that. So he's comfortable enough now at home to come out and go back in as he needs to and that is completely safe for him to do so. And that seems such a simple thing, doesn't it, to sort of say out loud. Imagine somebody who doesn't have a person at home trying to get a handle on what I'm saying and how that's a big deal, but it, but it is. Just to have easy conversations throughout the day is lovely. I'm Eliza Fricker, and you are listening to Missing the Mark, a podcast about autism and schools. I'm an illustrator and mother, and I draw the Missing the Mark cartoon about the education system and autism. In this episode, I'll be looking at what happens when you leave the system what recovery looks like, and what alternatives are to mainstream education when you know you need something different. For some children, the consequences of going to mainstream school are devastating. They end up too unwell to go. We started this episode with Lindsay talking about how long it took her son to heal because it's easy to think it's as straightforward as leaving the mainstream system and going to an alternative or special school. But actually, the first step is healing. We started from the basics, and that really was just sitting together, being together, bringing meals to her room, and then we built from there. And then ever so gradually, we could see that capacity. And I always use that word capacity. I could see that capacity grow and her window of tolerance, if you like, like they talk about it in trauma, that window of tolerance got bigger so she could cope with more. And we just built up and built up and built up from there. and. We watched it slowly come back. But it is hard for us to let go of those expectations of school and life. Dr Naomi Fisher, clinical psychologist and author of Changing Our Minds. 
I think it can be a real experience of failure for them. Mm. And I think that's really difficult because I think what they can feel like is everybody's putting all this effort in to keep me there. It's so important. And they're told, everyone's told at school, this is really important. This is the, your key to future life. If you, you know, only losers don't go to school. You don't want to be a dropout. You're told that from about the age of four. You know, this is where learning happens, basically. Learning doesn't happen outside school. It's not so important what you do outside school. And children really believe that. Our parents believe that too, because they've been through the school system. And my hypothesis is that it's that sense of being a failure that has the more long-term impact than actually they're not going to school. We know there are many ways for children to learn outside school. And what I would like to see is if we could be conceptualising stopping going to school as dropping into a different kind of education rather than dropping out of education. So dropping into doing things differently because actually you need things done differently and for that to be a kind of empowering position. Lindsay gave up her career to support her son when he couldn't attend anymore. I asked her what was the moment when they knew enough was enough. My son's attendance was down to about 22%, I think, in, in his final year. And having looked at the kind of offer without any HCP in, in Trafford, there was literally not one single thing that would have suited him. So I felt very much backed into a corner, but also kind of intuitively suspected that home education would probably be the most suitable thing for him. And I'd thought that for a long time, but hadn't wanted to commit to that for myself. You know, very extremely difficult when you're a single parent to figure out how you will possibly manage that. I decided to move back to my hometown, to where my parents live. And so I kind of thought, maybe it'll be okay if there's more help, if there's some more support around me. So I just decided to put my house on the market. After lockdown and experiencing lockdown, people just created their own version of school, didn't they, at home? So they had a desk. I even saw pictures of children in uniform at home. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, how different is it? What did you do different? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing at the thought of that. I did start thinking that we would have some sort of a timetable. I thought that there would be scheduled activities that we would do out of the home um, and maybe some volunteering at a local museum. And we tried all of those things and often the case with young people. The novelty of those things would work for our session, maybe two, but very quickly became a refusal or, you know, him not, not wanting to go. And that took me a while, unfortunately, definitely, a, a kind of a period where it was a bit like, I've given up lots of things to have you at home. We are going to do X, Y, and Z. And still, there were still parts of me that couldn't accept that it was him not being able to rather than just saying no. You know, it, it was, I can't, not, I won't. 
I think what was crucial to me at the time was reading from other people who were in similar situations who were talking about a period of de-schooling and a period of complete demand-free home life with no limits on kind of gaming, no limits on really anything, just an absolute kind of cosseting of that young person to, to get over the trauma. So during that time, during those last few years, I'd been sort of looking around at different things and I'd looked at special schools and they just felt like school. They were the same model, but just smaller. But they still had the same structure, the same... If we look at it from a sense, they still felt the same when you walked in. I was looking around at lots and lots of different things and a long time ago someone had actually given me that advice and I still say it to people now, look at everything that's out there and so I did and that helped me formulate an idea and I was looking at everything and nothing seemed different and we found a tuition service through a friend of a friend who was very child-led and they said that they would do that they would come to our home and they would from the beginning build relationship up get that going and that's what we did we had a tuition service who came in and there wasn't formal learning it was just playing games and actually giving me a break as well and just letting our daughter know that there were consistent adults again around the way that she was interacting and uh, and learning So things we didn't learn on our parenting courses were about processing, dysregulation, regulation. These are the nuts and bolts of understanding our children's sensory and emotional needs. This is what I learned from time at home together. Really understanding my child and what their needs were, away from just coping with each school day. I would say my experience is very similar to that. I didn't know anything about regulation and dysregulation. So again, like, the diagnosis has been critical, not because anyone has helped me, but because I've done the right research as a result. Even things like processing, like, do you, have you noticed that processing? I didn't realise how long processing takes my child. Now I can see it takes huge, huge amount of time. Huge. To an extent, my son's been masked so impeccably that it's been a huge disservice to him and me but it has absolutely been you know for his survival and mean that in its most dramatic sense so it's taken me ages to separate his words and behavior from the needs that aren't being met or from the over censored body So, yes, so things like processing and overwhelm are now really easy for me to see and to spot. Partly that's because we're in the calm, quiet home environment. 
I would have said my child was bright and curious in their preschool days, but many years of distress eventually turned into shutdown, closed off, tense. She had stopped learning. But something strange was happening at home. The less I pressured, the more she wanted to do. It was the opposite of parenting and teaching. It was reconnecting, getting alongside. Very gradually, over the time we were now at home, I saw that curiosity start to come. Subtleties, nuances, making things again. It was a careful dance of offering without pressure, suggestion and matching the curiosity, but still allowing myself, the adult, to allow for refusal and change of interest. I started to see her way of learning, how interest is the lead, it is the spark. Learning has to make sense. For neurodivergent children, interest-based learning is key. What we started to do was something really different, trusting the child to learn, to take the lead from them. Autistic advocate Harry Thompson talks about what's in it for me. You have to trust in the natural evolution of the child's interests and where it will go. You have to ask yourself, if you were your child, why the hell would reading and writing have any appeal whatsoever to them? And that's the question. How can you present it in a way that makes sense to them? If it has no relevance to my life right now, then it's not going to be done. Maybe at a later date it will. But the question is, where are they? Which place are they operating? You know, because you're so focused on trying to get the child to do what you want them to do that you're actually failing to ask the simple question, where are they at right now? You can work within their current location. What are they doing? They're playing Xbox. Well, at least you have a starting point. One of the things we noticed when my child was at school was that when she had someone to spend time with, an adult, a teaching assistant, she liked that they would chat and things would be different. She would engage and relax. Meanwhile, I went on parenting courses that told me I needed reward charts, timetables, order. I needed to take control. But it didn't work. It caused more tension, more meltdowns, more bad behaviour. Was there another way? Here is how Kieran Rowe's autistic advocate does it in his family. We have a very uh, non-linear hierarchy in our household. Mum and dad are the people that earn the money and we, we, we are the ones that ultimately make decisions framed around that. But everything else, mostly, we decide in conjunction with our children. We're a team. And one decision that one person makes impacts on everybody else. So we need to all be informed and we need to make those decisions together. I mean, if a non-autistic person came and sat at our dinner table and listened to the conversations that we have around things like gender, critical race theory, and I'm talking about having dinner with a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old, you know, but we're having deep conversations, politics and things like that, we're having, we don't hide away from our children, we don't give them enough to scare them, you know, we don't like overwhelm them with stuff that we don't think that they can understand or that emotionally they wouldn't be able to handle, but we respect the fact that they are individual human beings, we're not bringing up children, we're bringing up adults, 
they are going to be grown up. They are going to go out into the world at some point and they need to go and to be able to make decisions for themselves. They're going to need their autonomy. What we want is children who grow up to be autonomous, to have agency, are able to make decisions for themselves, are able to advocate for themselves and are able to make choices about what support they need. And we all need support. Every human being on this planet needs support. Autonomy. This word kept coming up when I spoke to autistic adults, both in learning and relationships. Perhaps this is what we had been missing before. In school, it's very much that you have to learn to be independent, which I find is another construct that is completely incorrect because most human beings choose to live with someone. Most people want to be in a close relationship of some kind. So the idea that we say to children that you shouldn't have that and you shouldn't depend on that is a really strange one because I think that that consistency of relationships is the be-all and end-all for children, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The irony is that as autistic people and as autistic professionals that you know support autistic children the narrative around being sociable is constant. You know, you have to be sociable, you have to be sociable in a particular way, otherwise there's something wrong with you. But then the hypocrisy then that all children have to be independent and do everything for themselves, those two do not marry, they don't go together. Because if you live as part of a community, you are reliant on that community to support the needs that you have. And like I said, none of us exist in a vacuum. No human being exists in a vacuum. None of us are truly 100% independent. We all rely on other people to provide things that we cannot do for ourselves. And that's there's ebbs and flows with that. It's different every day. It's, you know, it's different dependent on what you've got going on in your life. All of those things play a part in that. But schools constantly push this narrative of independence, work on your own, figure this out for yourself. I've given you the tools now, you can go off and do it. So autonomy and independence are different. What would it look like if we put autonomy first? Dr Ian Cunningham, founder of the Self-Managed Learning College, has explored this as a basis for learning. When somebody is interested in us, we ask them to come and spend a trial week with us to try out, is this a place they'd like to come? Because we know we're very different and because we don't have classrooms and teachers and lessons and all sorts of so clearly it's a good idea to provide that. And then I, I ask people often at the end of the week, you know, how they're feeling and is it interest to you know, any pluses and minuses about the place? And, you know, rather than saying stuff about the learning, because obviously they've only been with us a week, they say, it's great that I can go to the toilet when I want and I can go to the kitchen when I want, get something to eat or drink. And, it, and it's free as well in the kitchen. That, that's the first thing they mention. So the autonomy is, is broader than in, the, in what they can learn. It's also the notion of within a community. I mean, people talk about it being like a family and sometimes people think that's a bit kind of twee or whatever, but... but if pushed, they'd say, well, it's you know, like at home. You don't have to put your hand up to go to the toilet or go to the kitchen and get a glass of water. Something that is very much at the forefront of what you do is that autonomy for children, isn't it? That sense of autonomy around the way that they learn. The difference around children when they are given that autonomy, do you see less of, I mean, I'm using very typical language, but that sort of behaviour people talk about in schools, do you see that sort of, 
less of that extreme behaviour. We've got rules that are created by the community. They're not really rules at all. They're just about things about respect yourself, respect other people, respect the environment, respect the building, respect the neighbours and the community around us, etc. And the main thing is you can learn anything you want so long as you don't stop other people learning. And if that happens, then we as a community have to address it. But just the very fact that an individual signs up to the rules, we actually ask them to sign it. So that we put up a big chart on the wall when we've got an agreement and everybody signs that they agree to these rules and that they uh, will stick to them. So this is what schooling in a completely different way sounds like. Look at the plan you had. Here's Ian in one of his catch-up sessions with his students at the Self-Managed Learning College. If we look at what you've got down here, the touch typing, how's that going? Actually, I haven't managed to do that much touch typing recently, but I have done a bit. I need to start doing that again. I might start doing handwriting again right. every day. Now, the maths is steaming out, isn't it, and going well? Uh, um... Yeah, I'm doing a... Um, pre-calculus course on the brilliant thing I think I mentioned on here. Yeah, obviously you're ahead for your age group, and no question in terms of the maths. And you remember we talked about statistics and, and statistics, whether there was yes. any interest, you might have any interest in statistics or not. Yes. Did you did you listen to that, ra- that radio programme? Is it called More or Less? I think, I think it's called More or Less. Uh, no, I should have, but I didn't but on the other hand, if, you don't, if you're not interested, forget it, you know. Yeah. But and the piano, I, I talked to Jason, he said he was doing jazz piano with you, which is yes. <laughs> quite a step up. <laughs> How are you finding that, doing jazz piano? Good, I've uh, almost finished the tune I was playing. I've been learning for a while now. I think I, I can basically play it now. So, so what are you thinking of for this week, then? Uh, for this week, I'll probably completely finish that tune, because I'm almost there already. I'll continue that pre-calculus course, and I'll listen to more or less, and talk to Lars about statistics. This whole interaction was really moving for me. I recorded some thoughts after I left. It felt all very natural. And here, yeah, the music side of it was really quite emotional because I didn't know how good he was going to be when he played that and he was absolutely amazing. Um, And there's a sense of pride to that, isn't there? When you've done that all on your own merit and all on your own back rather than being told to do it and having sat there and been made to do a task that you don't want to do. Hearing children have that autonomy over their learning doesn't lead to chaos or rebellion. Um, Actually, it was quieter than most schools I've been in. Um, And the children all seemed very relaxed. And I thought hearing an adult talk to a child like that in a really natural way is something I've seen so many teachers in mainstream education struggle to do. I'm not sure if they're not allowed to talk to children in that way. Um, But I know that that's something that I've seen with the children I know. They find it really difficult to communicate with adults when they're not being sincere. And to hear that sincerity 
in the way that Ian was speaking to that child and giving him that... It is a democratic way of learning, but sharing that responsibility over that learning is going to surely create someone who's going to be more confident than someone that's being told what they need to do and being marked down for what they can't do. I asked Ian if he's seen young people who've had quite a negative prognosis in mainstream school come to his setting and have a different experience. Obviously for some young people where they've got a bad name in school, they've tended not to want to trust adults because they've often felt uh, victimised, but that they get into that kind of bode of, of, you know, these adults are against me. So it's talk about how we work things and that they literally can learn anything they want and that we do create the rules together. They don't necessarily believe it. And we have to prove it, you know, by showing that we're trustworthy and that we trust them. But that if that trust is broken, then we have to address it. You might assume if young people are given a choice, they will do nothing. But as we've heard, this isn't the case. Most choose to do GCSEs or some kind of qualification. We do other qualifications. We've used the Crest Award in Science, uh, which is project-based, and that's very good. And we use the Arts Award, where students can be freer, but they can get a qualification which is a GCSE equivalent, and where colleges are accepting uh, that notion, that uh, things like the Arts Award. Our students get a good reputation going to colleges, even if they've got a small number of, of uh, GCSEs, uh, because, you know, who needs to do 13 GCSEs, which I know happens in some of the local schools. When people know about us, which many of the colleges locally do now, they're keen to have our students because they know they can manage their own learning because they're happy being in a more adult environment where people use first-name terms, where... Yeah, you know, the college environment, the university environments are more relaxed. So we were at home for a few years and then we were actually offered something by the local authority. We were looking at long-term package of staying at home. And I think by that point, I didn't want to do it anymore. My daughter didn't want to do it anymore. We were ready for something else, but there wasn't anything that we could see that was suitable or that the local authority would pay for. So we were looking at a long-term package of being at home, but that seemed tedious. More management from our side of it, more, more sorting out that I didn't want to do. And so the local authority actually put forward a setting that was new and had only been open a year. And when we went to see that... With all the cynicism, I have to say, is tr always trying to be optimistic and open-minded. My husband and I went full of cynicism that day because it had actually been offered by the local authority, so we thought that it was going to be terrible. And it was totally different from anything else that we'd seen. It was nurturing, it was kind, it was bespoke, and it was holistic. And... The head teacher actually said, you look really, really tired. And I did break down then. And I could not stop crying that day. And my husband said, why do you keep crying? And I said, because I can let go. I had been 
here at home doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. And they said, we'll take as long as it takes. Everything had always had a time frame on it. Everything had had to be, or oh, we'll try this for one week and then we'll come. And they just were gonna give us time to do it. And I said, do you really think you can do it? And I've seen those little pullbacks that teachers have done the part, not, not a blink, not a pullback, not one flinch. And the head teacher said, yeah, we, we can do it. And they did it. We were really lucky to get a place at this school. I had been looking for something different for so long. After all, my child enjoyed people and interactions. Places like SML College are few and far between. Ofsted make it very difficult if you do want to do things differently. And this in turn means local authorities won't fund placements. Even if it is Ofsted approved, spaces are limited. The placements are costly and it could even mean going to court to prove its suitability over other educational settings that are cheaper. We just don't have many options, even when we know or even find something that could work for our child. Kieran Rose. I found parents' gut instincts intrinsically tended to be, you know, this system is not right and I don't want to be in it. But quite often there was a level of permission needed in order to make that decision for themselves. It was like they needed somebody else to say, it's okay not to take part in this. It's okay not to do this. It does involve really kind of questioning, you know, like, can I afford to do this? And all of those kind of things. There's a lot of privilege comes with making those choices as well. But sometimes it's necessary. But if you don't know that those choices aren't there or someone doesn't give you permission to take those choices or explore them, which is what currently happens, then you're forever just going to be bashing your head against a wall trying to navigate something which is unnavigable. Could these ways of working that help our children learn and connect with their learning be beneficial to all young people? Is it time for change for everyone? Chris Bagley is a psychologist, lecturer at UCL and Director of Research at States of Mind, an organisation that provides young people with the support and skills that is required for them to thrive in the world. And if you compare the UK's children, particularly English children, to those in other countries of Northern Europe, when you look at the OECD data, World Health Organisation, stuff coming from the Children's Society, UNICEF, English children fare extremely poorly in terms of their school satisfaction, life satisfaction, subjective well-being. That's across all young people. So the data is telling us that on average, across young people, this isn't just a send problem, this difficulty with school satisfaction and subjective well-being, which is very significant in England, is impacting across the board. And at States of Mind for the last three or four years, we spoke to hundreds of young people across a number of schools in London boroughs, and what we're finding is, and this is really striking actually, and we weren't entirely sure what we'd find, we're finding that the young people who are academically able, who theoretically succeed, inverted commas, from the education system and go to universities like Manchester and Oxford, they're saying exactly the same things that the students are saying to me when I'm in the prison environment. <laughs> In the final episode, I'll be finding out why our schools are broken. 
and asking, can we create an education system for all? One that is truly inclusive. Ooh, it'll be one classroom and any all could sit wherever they like. They could even hang upside down. A nice big open school with a lot of trees so kids climb the trees. It'll be right by a field so they could play in a giant field and have an exercise out so they could concentrate. Missing the Mark was written and produced by me, Eliza Fricker. The executive producer was Eve Streeter and the sound designer was Simon James. Music in this series was kindly donated by Kate Brooks, The Relations, Sim, Sean Julian, Tess Roby, John Ty, Abby Wade, Joel Wells and Simon James. The series was funded by Necessity, a living archive rooted in social and environmental justice. Thank you to everyone who's taken part, especially the kids and their families. Thank you.